So check this out. I got word that Hulu threw this crazy party in Beverly Hills with literally all of the biggest reality TV stars. I'm talking about all the Bravo Lebs, Candy Burris, Portia Williams, James Kennedy, Jax Taylor, even Captain Lee and Kate Chastain. Here's the genius part. If you want to find out what happened at the party, you have to watch the commercials. Yes, I know I'll be tuning in and then signing up for a free trial to get my favorite reality TV shows at Hulu.com. Trek Picard. Season 1, Episode 5 is over, but we're just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. My name is Jessica Lease, and I am here to talk about an episode that was full of a lot of really exciting, visceral, awful things, and I wasn't sure how long I should allot to talk about all of this, so I'm just going to eyeball it. I think we're good, and so with me as always, here is the guy who looks great in a pink hat with a feather, Mr. Mike Bloom. Jess, thank you so much for the high remarks. Uh, I listen, I rocked it. I rocked the facer look years and years before it became a thing. Thank you, mystery. Thank you, uh, you know, pickup artists around the world. You really made this a possibility to become the true fashion face of the facers in 2399. Are you saying that mystery is kind of like a Bill and Ted figure for people in the Star Trek future? I think just for the facers. Well, I mean, so the facers have to dress flamboyantly. I'm not entirely sure why Picard felt like he had to dress like the French version of Fearless Leader from Rocky and Bullwinkle, or why Elnor felt he had to dress like a a come-with guy from Woodstock 69, but apparently it was dress-up day, which is fun. It evokes, you know, the the holodeck aspects of TNG, even though we're not necessarily getting one. So I was sad we couldn't have everybody Dress up, though, uh, it seems like Ms. Dr. Gerardi has two faces anyway, so maybe she was playing a bit of dress up anyway. She was playing mental dress up, which is an entirely different thing, Mike. But I, I got to talk about the fact that they basically blew their entire budget for the episode on the first scene. And so shot everything else in a soundstage after raiding the clearance bucket at a party city to dress everybody for this episode. I mean, this, people want stuff that evokes back to TNG. This sort of feels like it, right? I mean, that was sort of the holodeck stuff was like, all right, we'll sort of put them on a soundstage for a little bit, take them out of the whole futuristic atmosphere from it. And I would say this whole free cloud stardust city stuff outside of the Raffi material felt obviously a bit Star Wars-y in terms of the cantina stuff. Even some of the hairstyles that the women were rocking feels like, we're getting a little bit of the Star Wars into the Star Trek. I'm not having a problem with it, personally. But, yeah, it definitely does seem like we finally reached our mission. And our mission is, it's not exactly as uh, intricate as an Ocean's Eleven-like situation. Probably gets as much blood on your hands as an Ocean's Eleven situation. But it involves more kooky dress-up. Yeah, this really felt like they had an extra episode. They just needed to shoehorn in one more episode. We got nine really good ones. We're going to take this episode in the middle and we're just gonna we're just gonna make you guys wear some sequins and like go to this stage that we bought from lucasfilm after they made solo it's definitely it looks exactly like the bar from solo is does it not yeah i mean it definitely looks like again some sort of like outer galaxy more modernistic approach i mean essentially this is supposed to be like space vegas right this is supposed to be like hedonistic look at the orion girls dancing we sell snake leave go to the red orion as we see from like the weird little cgi advertisement pop-ups that uh that welcome our characters to the city so i guess it makes sense that you know star wars is a, a franchise that often likes to immerse its hands in like the gritty salacious stuff that frequents the galaxy and i guess star trek picard is sort of towing that line specifically in this episode considering where bruce maddox found himself well, Mike, I think we're going to get into this a little bit later on, especially as we talk about this opening scene. But it really, some of these scenes feel to me like they are just excited to have this TVMA rating. And so they are running around like a kid in the candy store, like, oh, we can say the F word. Oh, we can show boobs. We can, you know, we can do drugs. We can kill people and have blood. And we can do all this because we're TVMA now. Look at us. And it's not necessary to tell the story, and I'm 
far from a prude and I've watched things that are far like they make this look like this makes Planet Pleasure Risa to look like you know Planet Pleasure Risa Pleasure Planet Risa was pretty tame compared to this and you know we see lots of stuff that makes this look that tame is what I'm saying Right. I mean, this, yeah, this feels like to make another uh, metaphor of, of your kid situation, like the kid left with the babysitter and being like allowed to do certain things now that like your parent overlord corporate uh, networks are not watching being like, oh, great, we could do all these types of things. And I mean, I want to talk about what Michael Chabon wrote on, I think it was Instagram in response to somebody posting about what they felt to your point was uh, the gratuitous violence, specifically in this episode, because Whew. I mean, we got that poor senator's head getting whopped off uh, at the end of last episode, but to open on just, you know, not even obscuring poor Icheb or a version of Icheb getting his eye flat out removed had me screaming at the top of my lungs as I was watching it. And, you know, Michael Shabon, obviously, he says it is a choice. Uh, he wrote, I am not unambivalent about the violence myself. The choice was not made lightly that was made collaboratively and therefore with a good deal of conversation and debate among the creators. And so I assure you that it is not there simply because we can, or because we are trying, as you somewhat uncharitably put it, to be in. My partners would have all their resources, own resources for its presence in this story, as some of us had had our own reasons for shying away from it. For me, it came down to this. There has always been violence and even torture in Star Trek. Sometimes that violence has been implicit, sometimes explicit, according to the dictates of censorship, the nature of the situation being depicted, the aesthetic of individual creators, or technical and or budgetary limitations. And the reason that there has always been violence in Trek is that Trek is art, and there has always been violence, implicit and explicit, in art. It belongs there. It belongs in any narrative about human beings, even human beings in the future. Violence often is the narrative, its source, its engine. The question of whether it's too much or not is ultimately a matter of taste. Personally, I come out closer to the less is more end, but that is just me. In the end, I saw how little time and space we had to convey a sense of Seven's history post-Voyager and the things that drive and haunt her. I decided with my partners that intensity was warranted. Seven lives outside the rational confines of the Federation because that is where she finds her sense of purpose. But life is hard out there. If it wasn't, people wouldn't have help, wouldn't need her help so badly, and she wouldn't have found such a compelling reason to carry on in spite of her history of trauma. But I hear you. I think that's a really interesting point. And I, I initially watching this was totally with the original commenter that like, I felt this was unnecessary. It was disgusting. It felt to your point like a bit like flaunting the new belt that you're able to wear and that you sort of have grown a size up. But I think Michael Shabon at least is making some interesting points in that. It's purposeful. You might not like the motive that it's necessarily showing, specifically from a, a graphic variety, but there is intention behind it. Yeah, he's he's not wrong. This definitely this definitely fits into the narrative and it gives Seven of Nine a reason to be doing what she's doing. And in that regard, I think it is extremely effective. Like it certainly it was just a gut punch. But on the other hand, there are plenty of violent gut punches in the Star Trek universe that don't involve the squickiest part of the human body being ripped out of a living being's head. Okay, I I get where he's going with that. And certainly uh, the point of art is to evoke strong emotion. Of course it is. But it was it was yucky. Okay. Yeah. It was yucky. Yeah, and it was it was it was disturbing, and it was weird, sort of you know putting it against the sort of honky tonk music that's eventually going to take us several years into the future at Stardust City. But to start it off, you know, it's it's like these very depraved scientists were just putting on their own Spotify relaxing music while they were basically murdering this guy. And I mean, this scene is monumental for so many reasons, not only from the grossness of it, but the fact that Jess. We had a surprise Icheb cameo, which obviously we knew about a bunch of previous cast members returning between Hugh and Data and Riker and Troy and Seven of Nine. But I guess Icheb sort of snuck through the cracks here. Well, I think one of the reasons Icheb snuck through the cracks is because they recast the actor. Yeah. I think we need to go back and give the people a little bit of a 
an Ichab backstory here because I think it may have been a long time since you've revisited Star Trek Voyager and you can watch this scene with no idea who that guy is. But once you know who that guy is, that's where I think it becomes super effective. Right. So we'll do a little bit of Star Trek 101 here. So obviously we know 7 of 9, we explained before, was a formerly assimilated uh, member of the Borg. She was not always a Borg. She was a human named Annika. You hear Bejazel, which we'll certainly get into her and her scrabblicious name coming up as well. Uh, you know, that was her name before she was assimilated. And Icheb was also someone who was assimilated. Usually, I believe when you're assimilated at an early age, you're kept in a maturation pod until you reach a certain age. Icheb apparently was genetically engineered by his parents to purposely contain like a defect that would sort of spread a virus within the Borg, sort of like what they were intending to do with Hugh in the original I Borg episode. And so he ended up emerging from this maturation pod a little bit early, hence why he's a kid. As a result, he was sort of able to take over his own Borg cube when Voyager found them. And essentially, he was on Voyager for the last couple seasons, where Seven of Nine worked with him to essentially have him rediscover his own humanity. And by the end of it, you know, he was working in engineering, he was applying for Starfleet, so he was on the mend, as it were. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty... That's pretty good on each of. There's one other thing I want to note, um, which is the first thing that they ask each of as they are vivisecting his face in this opening scene is, where is your cortical node? Did you catch that, Mike? Yeah, so I, I didn't catch it the first time, but I also had a LaRue, a big fan of the podcast, reach out to me about the connection as well. Because I'll admit, I'm not a big Voyager person, but I know, Jess, that there's a, a pivotal seven of nine each moment for Voyager, right? That's around the cortical node. That's that's right, Mike. Um, and this is when you remember this part. This is where it becomes really wrenching to know what's happening in this scene because Ichab does not have a cortical node. It's apparently it's a piece that the Borg put in your head when they assimilate you, and he doesn't have his because there was an episode of Voyager where Seven of Nine's cortical node failed. And she was going to die. And he's like, you can have mine. I'm not really using it. And he saves her life by donating his cortical node to her. So when they're looking for his and it's not there, it's because it's in Seven of Nine. That's how close they were. And like, that's how tight their relationship was. And that's also the kind of guy he is. So we just got watched him get really brutally murdered by... Bejazel's people harvesting him for parts in this very sort of Reservoir Dogs-esque scene. And when you think back to that scene, it's that much more upsetting. So I guess maybe that's another reason why we had this really senseless violence to begin the episode, Jess, is because you wanted stakes to Seven of Nine's mission, even if you don't know who Icheb is, so that when they beam down to Free Cloud and you see she aborts Picard's plan and just grabs Bejazel by the throat, you realize, oh yeah, she wanted revenge. It doesn't necessarily have to deal with the fact that you have to watch seven seasons of Voyager, or particularly the last two seasons of Voyager, to really get that relationship. Yeah, it, it's true. Uh, and she explains it in case you didn't see it, but it's it's really interesting to me that they are willing to go there. I was expecting... I was not expecting them to take a character that people would actually know and maybe care about at some point and just kill them brutally. That really seems like a very different kind of Star Trek. We have killed main cast members before, and we've killed supporting cast. We've killed people that we're supposed to care about, but never in a way that's like this gruesome and this awful. Well, especially, it's, it's a weird thing for Star Trek fans. of like, hey, you remember Echeb, dude? Wasn't he lovely? Didn't you like him? Great. Now he's dead. And he was brutally murdered by this person. It's a thing that really toys with the heart of a Star Trek fan, which I think is sort of the, the onus of this show, right? Is to sort of subvert those expectations. And so, again, I can appreciate the brutality of why it was done. I can't necessarily like it, but it does also make sense where, like, you know, you loathe a character like Bejazel, even if the character confuses you to no end because she looks so much like Deanna Troy that you're wondering if she's some sort of Betazoid or has some sort of connection to her. Right. I really wanted to talk about this because that seems like 
they're even kind of styling her like Deanna Troy. And yeah, she I had think, her hair up. Yeah, we could have certainly could have pivoted away from that look if we were trying not to call attention to it. And we know that we know that Troy is going to make an appearance at some point in the course of this season. So that's even weirder. Yeah, it's it was so strange to me. Uh, granted, she wasn't wearing a uniform, but she just really resembles her. And, you know, I was just confused with this on multiple levels, maybe because the name Bejazel. I wasn't listening with the subtitles on the first time, so I thought they kept saying the Jazel. <laughs> like, like it's some sort of, I don't know, mobster nickname, because she is some sort of, like, underground Borg broker. But when I actually looked up the name... I mean, Jess, I think you used up your Scrabble Star Trek name joke last week on the podcast and really should be utilized here. I don't think I've encountered a character in a while that's as oddly named or constructed as Bajazel. I think the only thing missing from this name is an apostrophe. Seriously, I I do have a different joke for this week. I think this is Michael Chabon's cat walking across the keyboard. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Or like he sneezes on the keyboard and whatever the particulate lands on or the letters that he uses. Yeah, or like, Bejazel! Ah, bless you. Bless you. Sorry, Michael Chabon. Um, Maybe you need to get those allergies checked out. No, 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 that's her name. Okay. All right, I guess we'll call her Bejazel. I mean, I'm glad I want to call her Jay for the rest of this because I feel like Bejazel is just... Bejazel sounds like like a, a dollar store third world country ripoff of, uh, you know, some sort of apparatus that helps put studs on your varieties of clothing. Mom, I asked for a bedazzler. This is a bejazel. No, it works just as fine. Look, if it is, if you put those studs in and they're smoking, it just means that you use the raw material, honey. Don't worry. Mom, why is my skin breaking out in a rash? Well, that's bejazel. Oh, yeah, bejazel. Um, I, I, I think the outfit she was wearing might have been bejazeled. Yeah, I mean it was shiny. She had the nice little like uh, skeleton rib cage of a of a ruff around her neck, which again, like very new, very actually very like Fifth Element. I feel like I got a good feeling about that in the bar as well, in terms of how people spend their time and how they look in particular, the the garish way they look. And yeah, bejazel is someone who comports herself very well. Uh, she's going to be a major player in this episode. Though apparently she will last only in this episode, but who knows if there's going to be a petition to make like a seven of nine uh, spinoff series, Jess, maybe we'll see Bejazel in it a bit more. I, yeah. Are we doing like a seven of nine? Like, are we doing a series that takes place between this and the end of Voyager? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what this when this section 31 series is going to take place, considering that Philippa Giorgio is currently 900 years in the future. From Section 31. So it could be like the Fenris Rangers spinoff is going to take place, you know, after the, the in between the Romulan supernova, trying to fill in all these blanks after the Federation left the neutral zone essentially collapsed. I really feel like there is a hard limit to the amount of backstory I need on this. And we're not anywhere near that limit yet, but I don't think I need another TV series to delve into it. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the idea of them sort of being vigilantes is interesting, though it sort of feels like that's what sort of this group is right now, right? Are a bunch of people who are not necessarily working on behalf of the Federation, but are doing certain things that might push the law in order to get done of what's right at the end of the day. So yeah, I agree. Maybe it's not necessary. But I mean, now that we officially have seen Jerry Ryan return, did you like this return to Seven of Nine? This was. You know, Mike, we live in a universe where we are watching an all-winner survivor season, and we're watching Parvati and Boston Rob team up and work together, and it's still not the fan fictioniest thing I saw all week. I I think the fan fictioniest thing I saw all week was Picard and Seven of Nine having a heartfelt conversation about what it meant to be a Borg. I still cannot believe that happened. That's something that like. People have been dreaming about since that character was introduced, and they just never crossed paths. And the, yeah, the, the obviously they had two big conversations: one in the beginning, which was more expository about what the Fenris Rangers do, and then one at the end, which the one at the end, to your point, was I think the one that everyone sort of wanted to happen. And I thought it was maybe the best part of the episode too. They are finally 
connecting around this shared experience that they had and sort of their continued struggles on each of their ends to regain their humanity when they feel themselves slipping in that mudslide with every step that they take. But I feel like they also sort of commiserate in one another of, like, we might not not know each other, but we sort of have been through the same shit. So, like, good for you, respect on you. But it also seems like Seven has looked upon the universe much differently than Picard does. I think both of them have experienced loss monumentally, but to see how they differently react to that is is an interesting thing as well. It doesn't necessarily indicate how, you know, non-assimilated people will try to get their revenge. Yeah, it's weird. I think I think Picard is still very much committed to doing the right thing and helping make the world a better place. And Seven is just like a ball of rage. She's like, I want to punish the people that did the bad thing. I don't necessarily need to set it right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and Picard wasn't always like this. Like, there was that brief period during First Contact, right, where he was like taking a baseball bat to his uh, to his glass display case, where he really wanted to get revenge on the Borg. And how can you not, considering the monumental roles they play in their life? But it does seem like at this point, Picard's relationship with the Borg has sort of reached a level of maturation. But I wonder if, like. For example, if someone like Bejazel had harvested Jordy LaForge, you know, for like his special technology through the visor or the former visor, I wonder if Picard would be as angry as Seven was with how Ichab was killed. It's a good point. I think it's it's a little less personal for Picard. They've tried to hint at what would make it personal for him, and they've given him connections to the Romulans and to artificial life as a concept but there's nothing that's that deep and personal for him because that's kind of not the guy picard is he's never had that one-on-one relationship with one person that we could point to where you know he's not had that kind of loss he's not lost someone so close to him that it just destroys him inside well, except for Data. That's the thing. Except is that, for Data, yeah. Yeah, Data was the one thing, and that's another reason why he's out there. And so, and that's another interesting part of that first conversation, too, when, you know, I think Seven sort of tries to uh, put Picard in a pace of patronizing and say, oh, you you think that we have to, you, you look down on us for having to break the rules to get done when we have to, but we're protecting those who don't have anyone to protect them. And Picard sort of reveals, like, hey, I'm sort of doing the same thing. And I think that brings them a bit closer together over a drink of bourbon. Unfortunately, when it turns out that Seven essentially hijacks Picard's mission to get her revenge over Bejazel, that's when their relationship, short-lived, sours a little bit. Yeah, well, Mike, I want to talk about this. I'm really, I'm still a little bit confused as to how did Seven of Nine know to show up when she showed up? And how is she? Like, did she just hear, like, they're on their way to Free Cloud, and so she assumes she's going to just hop on and, like, piggyback onto that and get her revenge that way? I was really confused, as I still don't quite get how she knew to connect with Picard at that moment. See, I thought it was completely coincidental. I don't want to be a Raffi here, because I know that's how you lose children and get, like, totally conspiracy theory, because we can save that for some other characters later in this podcast. But I thought it was that she was trying, you know, the Fremish Rangers are the ones who try to maintain order in this Romulan, formerly Romulan sector that seems to be falling apart. She was trying to protect the La Serena from this antique bird of prey, and it just so happened that this happened to be a ship that's going to Free Cloud, where Bejazel was involved. I personally feel like it was the chips falling in the right place for her to get her revenge. I don't know if necessarily she purposely planted herself on the ship, knowing that the person that they want happened to be within the possession of the one person she wanted to get revenge on. That just seems like so many coincidences. And I know this is a show that's inviting us to look past the blind coincidences and sort of come up with our own like Charlie Day board with the tax and the writing and the crazy face. Yeah, exactly. Who is Admiral Pepe Silvio? We shall never know. I mean, yeah, because I, I can't really think of how they would necessarily know that Bejazel was in possession of Bruce Maddox, because they didn't know, Picard's crew didn't know, until they actually got down to the planet. So, unless the Fenris Rangers just have ears absolutely everywhere, 
then Seven of Nine would be the best undercover agent of them all. Like, screw off Rios and Picard. Seven of Nine is the one you want to send in there with the, the, the bug in her ear. No kidding. And maybe... I, I like it just it just feels like this is a pretty big plot hole unless we're missing something. And I know we have some loyal listeners who are very good at pointing out where we've missed something. So I'm appealing to those listeners. I want to see like 15 mentions on my Twitter as soon as this drops telling me where we've gone wrong and what we've missed here, because if we're not missing something, this seems a little bit hinky. Well, let's talk about the Bruce Maddox of it all, because, I mean, speaking of another character from Trek past, this was sort of the MacGuffin of the first half of the season, right? They finally found Bruce Maddox. Picard finally found out where Soji is, which we've known basically since the beginning. And it's also curtains for Bruce Maddox, though, I guess to a point you made earlier, that might also be because, like Echeb, the actor playing Bruce Maddox is completely different from the one who played him in TNG. Yeah, it's it's not the same guy. And they they did a pretty credible job of like trying to make it look like the same guy, but I don't think if anybody went back and watched the episode featuring Bruce Maddox of TNG, I'm not sure that they would be able to make the connection. So it's a good thing we called him Bruce Maddox a whole bunch of times in the first 30 seconds. Yeah, the Bruce Maddox of yore sort of looks like a knockoff Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah. Like I don't think you would necessarily see He'd mature into like this guy who has, you know, this big gray beard and crazy gray curls and big puffy bags under his eyes. Though I guess maybe a lifetime of being chased after by the tall Shi'ar for building all this sentient life would do that to you, Jess. I, I guess it does sort of turn you into the crazy person. It, it's, it reminded me a bit of, um, Tim Robbins after a month in, uh, in the hole in Shawshank. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, Bruce Max had to call through. 12 miles of uh, uh, Klingon dung to get out to the <laughs> to get outside a free cloud. Yep. Um, unspeakableness is, I think, what the cable edit calls that. <laughs> wow. Um, imagine, yeah. the, um, imagine the cable edit of Picard. I don't know how they do that first scene. Um, they would just like it'd just be they'd cut away to a blank wall and you just hear like somebody screaming. Yeah, maybe they do like maybe they do shadow play instead or just blur it significantly so you couldn't really see what was going on. Yeah, blank wall and just like throw some red paint at the wall at a crucial moment. Yeah, or just have someone step out and describe what's happening. Yeah, we could just get the person that does like the descriptive file for the visually impaired. Yeah, or just have Patrick Stewart do it. Ah, yeah, maybe he is the person that does that. I mean, he has a nice soothing voice, especially in his older age. I feel like he'd be able to double dip here. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, so uh, Bruce Maddox's whole deal, uh, he had a facility. He was, I think, doing some, like, underground, like, his underground artificial life experiments that are not sanctioned by the Federation. He was being bankrolled by Bejazel, I guess we learn. And then she double-crosses him because she has a deal with the Tal Shiar. And Tal Shiar are, as we have come to understand, totally anti-synth. Right. And so, you know, we see a bit of Bruce Maddox deciding to run away. He goes to Free Cloud to essentially, you know, approach Bejazel and be like, hey, thanks for the loan, BT dubs. I'm going to have a tough time repaying it right now. And Bejazel says, well, we will find value. And the value is in him. And at the point that Picard finds him, they're willing to basically make a deal with the Tal Shiar using him as collateral. And so they're going to try to pose as sellers with a counter offer of seven of nine in place of Maddox. So essentially it's going to be a trade within a trade. Boy, I don't, I don't know how I feel about all of this humans as currency stuff. Uh, listen, it's not a utopia anymore, Jess. That is very clearly not 21st century Star Trek. Yeah. I, and I guess anything goes on free cloud. I, I hear that free cloud keeps your secrets. Uh, I don't know. I think it's pr pretty sure anything that happens on Free Cloud leaves Free Cloud, uh, as one l quite literally did. Someone left their body. Uh, actually, quite a number of people left their body. Quite a number of stories have left the planet. So it, it doesn't really hold its secrets in that well. Yeah. What happens in Free Cloud stays in Free Cloud until it comes up and assaults you in the form of a pop-up ad. Yeah, exactly. I, I still don't know how to feel about that. I personally, considering how populous human holograms have been in Star Trek Picard in particular. I don't know how I felt about the weird 
Illumination knockoff 3D anim- CGI creatures that came into play here. It was basically exactly how the internet looks in Ralph Breaks the Internet. Yeah, then that's why it felt a little strange to me, you know, because that's a cartoon. And this, granted, it's science fiction, but it still is sort of based in some sort of gritty, dark reality. I just just put like humanoids in there. You know, you can make him, you can have the red bullion be a bullion, but have him be humanoid. Don't make him a weird CGI creature unless they're essentially doing like four versions of the Mucinex mascot that, you know, are, are <laughs> these cute little cartoon characters that are here to advertise all the great ways you can let loose in Free Cloud. Yeah, but isn't it oddly satisfying that you can assault them to get rid of them? I kind of wish I could do that with actual pop up ads. Yeah, though, I don't know. Maybe we should have seen the signs when Agnes Gerardi begrudgingly punched away that robot, but then seemed to, like, relish doing it afterwards. Yeah, she got a taste, and then she wanted the whole meal. Okay, so, oh, what can I do next? How about I flatline my lover slash co-worker slash mentor? Yeah, well, that was a twist I had not seen coming. I think we knew that Gerardi was doing something totally not on the level here, but I had not anticipated that she and Maddox had been more than colleagues. Yeah, and and now it makes sense. You know, I could definitely look back on the first couple episodes, episode one in particular, and see how much, like, floweriness and emotion is dripping from Allison Pill's delivery when she talks about working with Maddox. At first, you think it's just recognition of, like, oh, this is a big brain, and I was so happy to work with him. But it appears like their connection branched out past professional and I also did like, you know, the fact that Arium style, we do get, you know, her looking in on the personal home movies of them. And I thought it was very symbolic how Bruce Maddox doesn't want replicated chocolate chip cookies. He wants to make them on his own, makes them perfectly imperfect, much like the way he describes Dodge and Soji later on. Like, of course, Bruce Maddox would want to make things himself. That's essentially what he does with these twins. Yeah, I, I guess that's his thing. So, Mike, am I given to understand, like, in... In the 24th century, do people just film everything they do? Like, is it a perpetual surveillance state so you can go back and replay videos of yourself making out with your partner and eating cookies with them? Or does everybody in the future just film moments of themselves making out with their partner so that they can revisit it later on in private? Yeah, so there's a few things. I mean, you could all you could say maybe they co-opted that technology from that one episode of Black Mirror where you have a grain installed in your eye. That essentially records everything you do. Maybe there was something that was like the form of a camcorder, sort of like when, you know, when you used to have a a, a a video recorder and you would be recording like, hey, we're bumming around the house today. We're making chocolate chip cookies. Maybe that's what Gerardi was doing, but with a, a newer version of it. Like, I don't know if this was a moment that she felt was worth recording or if it just so happened to be recorded. And that's the moment that she really wanted to dote upon in this moment. I suppose. Like, I, I'm sure you, you have plenty of, like, 30-second videos of your kid just doing a random thing. So, I I guess I can relate. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, essentially. You know, and who knows? Maybe it went on for much, much longer. Maybe they just wanted to send, send us, you know, the least boring 30 seconds, the highlight reel, as you were. But yeah, I, I'm. we talked about this with Arium as well, of, like, and I guess there was some question with that, too, of, like, obviously she was a bit mechanical in her own regard so obviously like you could say okay she sort of took the memories literally out of her head and placed it on some sort of usb i'm not sure how she's displaying these memories unless again if there is some sort of recorded element involved she could sort of pull it from that device otherwise if we're going with like star trek pensive here where gerardi is pulling (laughs) memories from her own mind and putting them into some sort of machine to replay them I don't think so. And I think with Arium, we kind of figured she was mostly robot, so she just had, like, a camera in her head and she recorded everything. But this was... And that doesn't even make any sense because she was a human in that video. I don't really know. Yeah, yeah, I, exactly. I, I do think... I personally think there are video cameras in the 23rd or 24th century. We just haven't seen them yet. Or maybe they're so small and undetectable that they've been there the entire time and we just don't know it. It's like Google Glass got even better. Yeah, I guess so. And like people, people got over their disgust with the concept of Google Glass. Yeah, I think once they got a little less ugly, then people were willing to hop on board. And once people got a little more comfortable with everything they do and say being recorded and monitored at every time. Right, right, exactly. That's just the the reality you got to live in. Maybe that's another reason why 
things you would say again things that stay on free cloud typically tend to stay on free cloud is maybe any sort of use of recording devices are not allowed because it seems like you know it's a pretty narrow window to get in and out and it also seems like some people have uh very large smelly reptilian bodyguards to stave people off initially yeah or maybe yeah like maybe you go on to like 24th century youtube and you can't get any like videos of like crazy free cloud gunfight yeah, exactly. Like free cloud, anything goes. You could do anything that you want. And that's why it's drawn in all these varieties of people. I mean, considering that, like, it seemed like when there's big standoff was happening in the middle of a bar in the middle of free cloud, like nobody was really having a problem with it except the direct parties involved. Yeah, it, it, I guess it's kind of like the Moss Eisley Cantina in that regard. Like you just chop off someone's arm and everyone's like, eh, give me another drink. Yeah, except for this one. I mean, I guess they hate droids as well, but that's because there happen to be some Romulans there that share the same uh, anti-droid tendencies as that one bartender. Yeah, they don't serve their kind. Uh, did you notice, Mike, this was maybe the second most fan service moment in the entire episode. We got this exterior shot of FreeCloud, and there are two businesses right next to each other on FreeCloud. One of them is Quark's Bar, which I guess is a franchise now, and one of them is Mr. Mott's Barbershop. Well, I'm glad that Mott got some work because, I mean, we only saw him work on the Enterprise D, and I can imagine that he probably, his services were probably needed elsewhere, and considering that he had to work on Picard as one of his main people, I don't think he had much work to do. So, I'm glad he's getting some work, and good on Quark for being able to franchise. I mean, I don't know exactly if he's going to be down there. I believe he was also mentioned as one of Rios' fake references as well, so a lot of Quark talk this episode, surprisingly. I guess that carries a lot of weight if he's got a if he's got a franchise on Free Cloud. Everybody knows him. Yeah, I suppose so. And I, I, you know, I think I saw something about like Dabo tables as well. I guess they go like part and parcel. The combination Quark's Bar Dabo tables. Yeah, yeah. I, I would expect of all the people that decide that Riza is a little too tame for them, I guess Quark would be one of those people. Yeah, I think so. Like he wants to find the seediest locations to put up places because he knows that's where. He's going to get, you know, the most frequent people. Maybe Morn would have been in there. Maybe that's where Morn got settled after the days of DS9. Like, he's taken up permanent residence at the Quarks and Free Cloud. Yeah, maybe so. Like, Or maybe he's a franchisee. He loves the bar that much. I think that makes a lot of sense for Ooh, him. Angel Investor Morn. I like that. Yeah, I, I love it. Uh, it's great. Um, But I don't know how gangster a planet can be if the, like, the, the most gangster thing you can do in a bar on this planet is order a drink with two umbrellas. Yeah, really showing your panache there, Rios. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a point in favor of Rios as a hologram. Yeah, I mean, I was so surprised that he beamed down to the planet. And, I mean, again, I don't know Voyager that well, just was the Doctor ever able to go off ship for missions? The Doctor generally did stay on the ship, but I think they did have a remote transmitter that they could use to take him off the ship if they needed to. Okay, well, I, I I feel like they wouldn't necessarily, like, I personally feel like his appearance here debunked the theory. I don't know if they're going to get super cute and being like, well, he used that, and that's how, you know, he's still able to, to be a hologram. But, oh, I mean, I was a little disappointed that he was able to beam down there, even if he was able to show off, you know, a, a more sultry side of Rios that maybe we've seen through one or two of these other holograms. Yeah, he seemed he seemed pretty jazzed to be embracing this role, too. Like, I, I think Picard's the only one that chewed the scenery harder than he did. Right. And that's, you know, I'd heard on the ready room that Will Wheaton said that, like, Patrick Stewart just, like, loved to do that voice between takes <laughs> on the TNG set. So I love that they sort of brought that out as, you know, hey, Patrick, you don't have to do this funny voice on set. Yeah, we're, we're going to have you do that on an actual episode of the show. Yeah, this was basically, I, I actually, I think it was the other way around. I think it's pretty much like they had this episode that they wanted to shoehorn in and Patrick Stewart is like, I'm only going to do the show if you let me take a whole episode where I can wear an eye patch and an ascot and speak in this <laughs> terrible voice that I torture people with. Exactly. Like, oh, there's this cool thing. I want to prank uh, essentially the entire audience by having me go into this really ridiculous French accent. Though I, I'm trying to remember, Jess, how did like, the French language like disappeared at that point in Star Trek canon? So I guess maybe he didn't even know what a French accent sounded like. Well, that's how they fan-wanked that, um, that's how they justified that Picard had a British accent even though he was French. So they're like, well, nobody speaks French anymore. It's a dead language. So, but you know, they have the entire Western canon to deal with. And he has like all kinds of 
episodes, like, clearly he's seen The Little Mermaid because he just cribs the chef's voice from The Little Mermaid. I was gonna say that, or, like, the works of Pepe Le Pew. Like, that's how he had to, but that's what he had to, Cliff's notes, uh, to figure out this character. And then poor Elnor. Like, a fringe jacket <laughs> is, is the most exotic Elnor is going to get, unfortunately. But I really loved Elnor's guilelessness here. He's like, oh, I have to lie? I've never done that before. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, this is the guy who comes from absolute candor. I think the idea of actually telling a lie, let alone building an entire new profile around lies, just seems completely out of this world to him. Yeah, it's it's like that movie that, um, The Invention of Lying, that Ricky Gervais one, where they had to mm. just, they're like, oh, you mean you could just, like, say something and it doesn't have to be true and people are just going to fall for it? Yeah, I feel like it was, I think it was used to comic effect. I don't know how well it was. Like, I'm really intrigued to see how much they build out more of Elnor outside of him just sort of being, like, the guileless, childish guy. But I don't know exactly if it was used to its best effect with him bursting out in the middle of Rafi's big scheme, like, oh, I get it, everybody's lying! <laughs> yeah, the un- the unfrozen caveman Romulan. Yeah, now look, I might just be a guy from Vashti. Your world frightens and confuses me, but I get to wear a jacket with fringe. Exactly, and do a little bit of a Spanish accent. Yeah, I I think, really, if you had to pick people, I feel like it would have been easier to train him to do the transporter and bring Gerardi with you. I would say so as well, because, uh, I mean, Gerardi seemed like she was having a panic attack, though I think in retrospect, I think the show did a great job of setting up that maybe it didn't necessarily have to do with that, and more so with she knew what she had to do. And the idea that Bruce Maddox was coming to her meant that was becoming a reality. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, she still, I think, has some affection for him. But also, I really am interested to find out exactly what's going on. Like, why, what does Gerardi know? And what has she been shown that is compelling her to kill her ex-lover and colleague and the person who probably had every answer to all the questions we're going to spend the next five episodes trying to answer? Right. So this is the timeline that I've thought up personally, because I don't think, like, I don't think Gerardi is a synth. I don't think she's a secret Romulan. I think that episode one Gerardi was the Gerardi that we know. I think she was legitimately working with and schmoozing Bruce Maddox. Uh, you know, she helped create Dodge and Soji. I think that in that episode three, when we saw Commodore O wearing those nasty-ass shades approaching Gerardi and saying, like, we have to have a talk, I think their conversation off-screen was O basically saying, like, here's all this stuff with Dodge and Soji. Here's this myth of the Destroyer. Here's how the Romulans you know, feel about it, the Jad Vash, et cetera, et cetera. And so she was essentially sent on Picard's mission as a double agent to find Bruce Maddox, kill him, and then assumingly kill Soji as well. I that makes that makes the most sense, Mike. And the thing I think is really interesting is I think she was probably brought in on this super big secret of the Jat Vash. And I think that the secret of the Jat Vash that we are gonna be compelled to understand by the end of the season is probably something that's like 10 seconds long. I think it's a pretty short and pithy to the point secret that as soon as people are brought in on it, it really kind of ruins their whole worldview. And I think this probably happened to Gerardi as well. Right. So then it would make sense looking back. I mean, they said with the Jad Vash, right? Like they held a secret that would make people's brains melt. And so you can imagine, well, Gerardi's brains didn't melt, maybe her moral compass did, as, you know, she makes this extremely tough decision, and Allison Pill does a really interesting job here of, this is essentially her Breaking Bad moment, you know, this is her allowing Jane to choke on her own vomit, where she watches him die, and then she, like, wipes a tear away with the back of her hand, and then just sort of continues on, and it's a chilling moment from a character who we just thought was, like, the goofy comic relief for so long. Yeah, she was basically, I thought of her as kind of being transplanted out of a Joss Whedon property. Yeah. She had that sort of like quirky, nerdy girl thing going on. And like, I'm going to make a wise crack, but I'm kind of, I'm kind of cute and awkward and a little clumsy. And then to watch her go from that to stone cold killer and kind of still has one foot in the world of the moral and is quickly shifting away from that. That's really interesting to watch. 
and especially the fact that it seems like she's probably the one who Picard trusts the most, right? Like, he has business with Elnor, Rios is someone he hired, him and Raffi have drama, but he feels like, you know, he defended Gerardi when he was, when she was brought upon the, the La Serena and Rafi sort of ruffled her feathers at that. So I think if there's anybody who Picard would least suspect to turn on him and work against his mission, it would be Agnes Gerardi. And I think that's why, maybe why O approached her in particular for this mission. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's a hundred percent correct. And I think, I think it will be interesting. I would guess that he's going to start to believe that there's some traitor in the camp, but she might be the very last person he suspects, and he might go through absolutely everybody else before he arrives at her. Right. And, you know, I could imagine this moment where, like, she she holds a phaser at Picard, you know, and she then reveals her whole master plan, or at least everything that she's been on. But, like you said, I still think she has one foot in the regretful side of things, especially killing Maddox of all people like the reason why the EMA shows up during his killing is because she has a panic attack like he registers the psychiatric distress that she's under so it's very clear that she had a tough time doing this well that was kind of an awkward moment too because it was like he appears he's like please state the nature of your medical emergency oh wait please state the nature of his medical emergency (coughs) yeah that's very true like oh okay I guess I made two house calls here but both of them failed though I mean, you could easily dismiss it. I was, again, I was unsure as to why the EMH was brought up on the previously on. I thought it was going to be to reveal this big twist that Rios was actually a hologram the entire time, but apparently it was just to sort of bring in Chekhov's EMH to see all the times that Agnes was really having a lot of times emotionally reconciling what she has to do. I'm so bummed out that Rios is not a hologram, or the at least the theory of Rios being a hologram got kind of punched full of holes this episode. I was really invested in that theory. Yeah, though I mean, maybe he's something else. You know, we still don't know his dark past with that Starfleet captain he loved so much that caused his Starfleet record to be wiped off the face of the galaxy. So maybe there's still some more stuff, though. Knowing this show, maybe we'll see the captain, like, impaled on a spike, and just the episode will be him slowly dying over the course of 45 minutes. Yeah, I I mean... We're willing to go there now because it's art. Thank you, Michael Shavon. Well, I guess speaking of art and speaking of heaviness, should we talk about the Rafi of it all? Because I think we thought that like Rafi was lying of like, oh, no, I'm just getting a ride to Free Cloud. But it seems like she had some business to take care of. Yeah, she has she has a past to tend to. And apparently I have not gotten a hold of this book or read it yet. But apparently there's a novelization that dropped since the last time you and I spoke, Mike, that gives us some like detailed background into Rafi and to what she's been doing in the aftermath of the Mars attack and kind of why she is such a complicated person. And one of those things that was mentioned is that she had a husband and a son And in the aftermath of the Mars attack, she basically abandoned them and got caught up first in this conspiracy theory about the Mars attack, and then later on into uh, vaping snake whatever. Yeah, it's. I mean, when Michelle Heard was on The Ready Room a couple weeks ago, she said that Rafi is a character that is sort of a personification of addiction. And I wasn't sure what she meant by it. I thought it was just at face value, like you said, about the snake leaf and her sort of drowning her sorrows. But if you look at this conversation she has with her son, it really is not only an addiction to those substances, but almost an addiction to those conspiracies. And we sort of get her trying to take one of those 12 steps of, you know, making amends with the people she's wronged with her life. And it's so intense. There is so much gravity there between these two characters. And to see... So much remorse that Rafi shows when she's been so callous to everybody in the show beforehand and see her son just spit venom back at her for what she's done to him. It was really an emotionally moving scene. Yeah, and I think the actor they got to play her son, I think he did a tremendous job here of like the second that he sees her, he just like his whole face changes and he's just seething the whole time. And even though the words coming out of his mouth are fairly collegial for most of the conversation they have, like you just like feel the hate coming off of him in waves. Like he's really upset with her. Yeah. I mean, he thickens that tension right from the get go. You know, the first thing he said to her is this, wow, here, 
not even high. It's like, wow, I can't even believe you tracked me down here. I mean, I think something that also complicates the situation, Jess, is you can imagine that Rafi's conspiracy theories are that the Romulans planned this attack on Mars. Who do we see Gabriel is siring a child with? A Romulan. Is so that you a can Romulan? Am- I thought it I thought it might be a Vulcan at first, but some internet sources have told me that it might be a Romulan. I prefer the latter because I think thematically that would make it even more meaningful of like, well, she would definitely disapprove of this, so like I'm I'm not gonna tell her about it. That makes sense. Um I I think especially like she seemed like she was very friendly for a Vulcan, so I guess that makes a lot more sense. And you're right, there's some poetic justice in that. Yeah, and I mean, also, the fact that, you know, you would say, well, these Romulans aren't necessarily regarded. I think Free Cloud is maybe one of the reasons why they went to Free Cloud is maybe it's sort of like a place where under the table, this sort of like Romulan interspecies mating can be a thing and not be too taboo. Yeah, okay. I I do like that. Um, I mean, is is there a taboo on that? Like, do we do we care that much? It seems like people just kind of hook up with whoever they want in the future. Yeah, I mean, I guess because the Romulans sort of went under their own thing, I just never assume, I guess I should assume that, like, any pointy-eyebrowed, pointy-eared creature we should see in Star Trek Picard is probably a Romulan, unless indicated otherwise, right? Yeah, I guess so. I, I think... Considering how Romulan-forward things are? Yeah, I think if you're... Because the Romulans are such a big part of this story, I think if you got pointy ears and a brow thing, we got to assume you're a Romulan unless somebody like points at you and says, as a Vulcan, can you give us your opinion? Yeah, unless you're rocking sunglasses, then you're a Vulcan. Otherwise, in any other situation, you're a Romulan. We do not know that O is a Vulcan. I think O is a secret Romulan. I mean, she has the easiest one to, to disguise herself, right? Well, totally. You just, it's, it's like you just sort of, you wear your hair a little bit differently and you put on some you take off your shoulder pads and all of a sudden yeah i'm I'm a vulcan but yeah this is a tough scene to watch especially you know as someone who likes rafi considering that as soon as you know his romulan vulcan whatever walks out like he basically speaks on behalf of rafi right he's like this is my mother and she was just leaving like she can't even speak up to dispute that and you see her put up a really brave face but as soon as they turn the corner she just falls apart and the fact that she is back on the la serena apparently contained behind her cabin means that that mission was a failure from her perspective is she in her cabin because mike i really wanted that to be the bathroom because (laughs) you never see the bathroom on star trek and i thought it would make more sense if she's just like locked in the bathroom yeah like one of those teenage girl type of things and picard was gonna pull a danny tanner for a second and you know give a heartfelt conversation over strings yeah, yeah, like, you know, I know you're in there, and I know you don't want to talk to me. But he sort of, he's like, ah, you're fine. Good to have you back. We'll see you later, kid. I'll save some extra synthahol for you. <laughs> I guess. Well, he's got bourbon. He doesn't even need the synthahol. Yeah, that's very true, though. I don't know. I, well, it's a good thing Seven left then, because she was hogging some of it. Hopefully she didn't drain too much of his holographic supply. Yeah, she's like throwing that back like it's Kool-Aid. Yeah, she really is. Again, showing how embittered and hearted she is. Oh, yeah. And, okay, so the other fan servicey moment, and this was the point where I had to pause it and explain to my <laughs> husband what fan service is. And I said, fan service is basically when you put a scene in a show that's just for people that really love the show. And I think Seven of Nine double fisting phasers and walking through a bar in this badass leather outfit is the most fan servicey of all fan servicey things. Not to mention, it was also prompted by the Voyager theme playing as she beams off the La Serena. So it's sort of like a big tribute to Seven of Nine. You could clip out that minute and a half where she beams back onto the planet, disintegrates Bejazel, says, oh, Picard's so cute, he's still optimistic about the state of the universe, and then just sort of double blasters her way out of the place and just use that as a reel for Jerry Ryan. Oh, totally. Like, and also, Jerry Ryan looks like she walked off the this, this set of Voyager yesterday. She looks fantastic. Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. And it was really, she was definitely a get for this, for this series. And I'm glad that we got this episode with her in it. Uh, I did want to give a shout out to Lawson Campbell on Twitter, who 
asked us to discuss how amazing the music for the show is and noting that the transition into the notes from Voyager as Seven is transporting was absolutely perfect. And I can't disagree with that. I think there's so much I it's almost like you want to go back and watch every episode twice so that you can just pay attention to the music cues. Exactly. There's so much visually and audio wise going on that even when you're not paying attention to the main plot of things, there's so much little stuff going on in the background where every small choice is made for a reason. And and that just makes a perfectly constructed show, in my opinion, especially one, like you said, that's built on the backs of decades of Star Trek history at this point and is based on the adventures of one of the most beloved characters in the franchise. Yeah, it's you have to you have to cater to because especially and especially in Star Trek, because Star Trek has always been this property that people are deeply, deeply invested in. I mean, I've seen Trekkies. Yeah, the documentary, you mean, or do you mean in yes. person? Well, both. I, I've I've been to cons. Went to a con in costume. Con! <laughs> uh, but people like they I think modern fandom as it exists now of any property has a lot to credit Star Trek with. And so if you are making a show in this universe in particular, you got to come correct. Right. A stand culture would not exist without Trekkies. Yeah. Trekkies are the original stands. Wow. Never thought I, I guess. So Trekkies are the data and the stands are the, the Soji and Dodge. It's, it's true. It's 100%. It's just an army of Soji and Dodge. Well, speaking of that, okay, so we're halfway through the season, Jess, and we're finally going to the Borg Cube, it looks like. It's interesting. For the first episode ever, no Narek, no Soji. I was personally fine with it. I talked last episode about how I felt it was a little bit uh, extraneous, that storyline. You know, my notes actually say, I bet Mike is pretty psyched not to have to go to Artifact Valley High. Yeah, because it, it seemed like we sort of were circling the drain a bit. And now at least with Picard assumingly getting there, if not next episode, then maybe the episode after that, that's going to stir the pot in an interesting way. It it definitely has to. I, I'm just picturing like Picard rolling up on them and seeing Narek like with his arm around around Soji and he's just like, hey, you get your damn hands off her. Yeah, exactly. And then we're going to have what Picard challenges Narek to like a drag race in space in the in the beta comp quadrant. Yeah, the card is like Space Dad. <laughs> exactly. Oh, Space Dad. That's, again, why we had to bring him back, because he's our Space Dad, and we want to see Space Dad swear and kill people, but then regret it afterwards. Yep. And, um, you know, put on an eye patch. Putting on an eye patch and a beret and an ascot and speaking in a terrible French accent to everybody is like the most dad joke of personas you can put on. Right, exactly. Like, Dixon Hill, this is not. Yeah, this is... This is very much like, this is Dixon Hill on steroids. <laughs> but on, like, very weird steroids that fell off the back of a truck. I think that's the kind of drugs you get in Free Cloud. Yeah, I could assume so as well. Like, really under the table, third rate, like, this isn't actually legal because there's so much in it that we can't legally call it what it is originally. Yeah, it's like, it's like I bought some snake leaf, but this pa- this was cut with something weird. So what do you think about this being the halfway point of the season now, Jess? Like, we, we have only five more episodes to go. Are, are you in a good place with Picard right now? I think so. It's interesting. We had talked last week about when we thought they were going to end up getting to the artifact. And I had said I thought we'd probably have to go another three episodes before we got there. And so it's a pleasant surprise that episode six, they're going to roll up on the artifact, apparently. I'd agree with that. And that makes me excited as well, because I don't want to spend like two episodes there. You know, one of the advantages of it being Star Trek is you could go literally anywhere in the universe. And I assume if we spend a certain amount of time on the cube, whether or not they leave with Soji, there's probably going to be some more galaxy trotting for them to do. But I feel like this was an awesome transitional point, too, of like, we spent the first five episodes really getting to know these characters and have the mission of find Bruce Maddox. And we got him. And he died. So now, what's next? And I feel like it's, it's a good, like, act one closer. So now we have our sort of intermission to regather ourselves and then see what exactly these characters are going to get into for act two. Yeah, which isn't to say they couldn't have another traveling sort of episode where they get into some kind of hijinks on their way to the cube. And the cube is like the very last thing of the next episode. I wouldn't be shocked if, if that was what happened. Right, especially if they're dealing with, like, the aftermath of things, or they're gearing up to actually see Soji. 
maybe this is where the big like who done it happens where they find Bruce Maddox dead and they have to figure out which one of the crew killed him like I can see that becoming a possibility as well but I would say he's getting to the Borg cube if not at the end of next episode then definitely by the beginning of episode seven yeah I th- I think for sure although we could also if we really wanted to drag it out if we're like we're borrowing a page from the storytelling style of The Walking Dead. You could certainly also next episode is who killed Bruce Maddox. Episode after that, we don't even go to the La Serena and we spend the whole time on the artifact, the getting into the nitty gritty of the relationship with Narek. And you and I would probably be ready to pick up a phaser in each hand and like walk through the entire cube ourselves at that point. So I hope they don't do that. Yeah, then it turns out what Bajazel was hiding under a space dumpster the entire time. It wasn't actually dead and is getting her revenge on Seven of Nine. Oh, that's 100% what's going to happen. And then and then we have to spend, like, the entire, the entire year between seasons trying to figure out, like, who actually died. Right. So it's going to be, you know, Narek walking down a row of our tied-up crew members, you know, singing a little Romulan folk song. And we have to figure out who's going to get the phaser blast to the head. Yeah. No, no, don't do that. If If you're listening, like, retroactively... CBS All Access, if that's what you got delivered to you to be airing next week, don't air it. Like, just just pretend it didn't happen. Yes, pretend that the, the footage got lost or something. You know, don't access your memory banks like Gerardi did. Just sort of erase that memory, let it die like Maddox did on that medical bed, and move on to something brighter and better. Yeah, you know, speaking of Breaking Bad, like, if someone accidentally tripped and fell onto those episodes with a magnet... I wouldn't be mad. Yeah. And tripping and falling is how they got the name Bejazel, right? Yeah, I think so. So, you know, tripping and falling brings us a lot of good things in this universe. Exactly. Take the good with the bad. Yep. So, Mike, is there anything else we feel like we need to touch on before we wrap it up here? I don't think so. I mean, there was a lot of interesting stuff in this episode. You know, to see the scheme actually get carried out and then get thwarted was interesting. I love the Seven of Nine reappearance. And again, Jess, I don't know. I feel like there could be something in there for the Fenris Rangers spinoff, but... I also could see that this would not be the last appearance that Seven of Nine makes on this season. I certainly hope not, because I thought Jerry Ryan did an awesome job here. Yeah, she was fantastic. And I feel like we don't need a A-Team in Space spinoff, because I feel like this is the A-Team in Space spinoff. That's true as well. And you know, I don't know what Season 2 is going to look like. We obviously don't know what Season 1's end is going to look like, if they're going to continue on these adventures, or if Picard's going to get settled down in some other planet somewhere. But... I would say more seven of nine, at least, because I thought she really did a lot of great stuff in this episode between being a badass action hero to being so emotionally devastated over losing her surrogate son. Like, really powerhouse performance from Jerry Ryan to really cap off these first five. Yeah, it definitely makes me want to go back and rewatch Voyager. Yeah, definitely. So, um... Before we wrap things up, Mike, I wanted to give a shout out to everybody that sent us great feedback on Twitter. We had an extra day this week because Mike's getting over a cold, although, you know, to listen to him now, he sounds great. And I'm glad that everybody's on the mend here. Um, but we appreciated everybody tweeting at us your questions and thoughts. And we are trying to get better at reading your tweets verbatim on the episode to give you credit for the great thoughts you're having um and we're going to continue to do that so even if you don't get your tweet read trust that you are shaping our dialogue and helping us out and again there's a lot of holes that we that we are finding in this past episode so i'm hoping that someone that's a little more on the ball than us can give us some tweets um explaining a few things that we aren't quite clear on uh, we appreciate that as well. Um, right. And we also appreciate nobody's being an a-hole about it, right? Yeah, we're we're a community. You know, even though it's just Jess and I talking, we're, we're a bunch of nerds here that love this show. So feel free to let us know your thoughts, your theories about stuff as well, especially as we head into the, the back half here. And with Gerardi's real turn, I'm sure there's a lot of people's brains going about what that could possibly mean for what's to come and what just happened. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to find out. Like, does she make another turn and like come back to be a face again? Or Ooh, triple agent. Yeah, triple agent. I it's happened before. It could happen again. I'm into it. Um so you can find us on all of the places where you listen to podcasts, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, whatnot, and I wanna give a particular announcement that we now have a feed on Spotify. So if you are a Spotify user, you can find us by searching post show recaps and the Picard feed is in there as well as a feed for the general post show recaps universe, which includes 
many wonderful programs, including uh, The Walking Dead is coming back on Sunday, Mike, and Josh Wiggler and I will be here to break it all down next week. Oh my goodness, it's finally alive once again. How are you feeling, Jess, now that you're sort of moving back landbound to talk about zombies? It's it's going to be an interesting tonal shift, and I'm going to be pulling double duty for the next five weeks, which should be extra interesting. Yeah, exactly. You're going to be like one of those overworked crew members having to pull double shifts while the the crew is short staffed. Yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be a wild ride for sure. Um, so Mike, what else are you up to this week? Because I've been doing double shifts, Jess. Uh, you do like octuple shifts, dude. Yeah, essentially, I'm just hyped up on so much espresso at this point, Tilly style. Uh, so I'm covering Lost. Josh Wiggler, obviously, on Down the Hatch, covering Survivor. Over on Rob has a podcast and in my writing as well. I pimp out all my content, wearing my Rios hat, at a Mike Bloom type. So be sure to check all that out. Fantastic, Mike. And uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Haymaker Hattie. And in addition to Walking Dead, I'm going to be a guest on a totally unrelated podcast this week. I'm going to be on Sarah Bunting's Blotter Presents. We're going to be talking about the Unabomber, and we're going to be talking about a new true crime podcast that has caught my attention. So I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be a very exciting time. You say disconnected. I'm sure you're going to make a Survivor reference in there somewhere. You know... It comes with the territory, Mike. We ne- we're never not making Survivor references. Some of these guys at the end of 39 days are looking like the Unabomber. <laughs> I-, I think I could do better than that, but we'll, <laughs> we'll see if I do. So I'm glad to make some kindling for your fire, you know? Yeah, it's true. Uh, you know, in this world without technology, uh, building a fire is very important. Exactly. No, no space fires existing out here in Picard. Definitely not. Um, and you can also find, uh, I contribute feature articles to primetimer.com. Most recently, I wrote about This Is Us, which is in the home stretch as well. And hopefully, we'll be answering a lot of the many questions that it raises. I think that about wraps it up for us. So I want to give a shout out again to all of our wonderful listeners who are providing amazing feedback and everybody that works behind the scenes to get this podcast up. So live long and prosper, everybody. And we'll see you next week. <laughs> 